Well, as Zach mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series today. And like pretty much every church at this time of year, there's this move towards, this distinct change in emphasis towards the Easter season. And while we learn and reflect upon the teachings of the life of Jesus throughout the year, at Easter in particular, we, we specifically move to remembering, the, uh, remembering and celebrating his death and his resurrection that gave power to the words that, that he spoke when, when he was in Jerusalem, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in the days of the events leading up to Easter, th- there came this decisive moment in Jesus' ministry. And it's sort of where we start our new series. And this decisive moment is found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, verse 51. And we're actually going to spend a fair bit of time in that area, in that passage today. So if you want to be kind of ahead of the game here a bit, you can open up your Bibles or your phones. Or if you want to grab a pew Bible in front of you, Luke chapter 9 is found on page 842. And we find this decisive moment, this change. And here's what we read in verse 51. It says, as the time came, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now to say that somebody is resolute is to speak of purpose, of determination, of this unwavering commitment to move towards a goal. Perhaps you can think of a time in your own life or a situation in your own life when when you had this resolute commitment belief or this resolute goal that you're working towards. We see this in students. When we come uh, just a few weeks now as our high school students move into the university years and and sometimes they have this resolute determination that there's a certain program in a certain school. A, A student may have this resolute determination, this unwavering decision that they're going to study medicine at the U of A. Or perhaps within a married couple that's going through some challenging times, they have this resolute commitment to do the hard work to get through the struggles and to maintain the relationship. Or a family has resolute determination to get out of debt so they can buy that first home for themselves. Now looking back on perhaps a situation where you found yourself in a resolute mindset, you might be able to evaluate that situation and understand that determination was not always enough. Because there's a lot of things that we all want, but don't always get. For example, kids may resolutely want a puppy. They say to mom and dad, I promise I will walk it every day. I will feed it. I will give it love. It will sleep in my bed. I'll make sure it has its water and it will never be alone. It will be happy all the time. Mom and dad, how long does that last? Two days tops, right? And then all of a sudden, mom and dad have a 15-year commitment that they need to look after. But why does that happen? Because success is more than just wanting something. Success in these things that we have resolute desires towards requires more than just a desire. It actually requires us to look at the priorities that we put behind things. You see, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. We set out resolutely for things in our own lives. And we need to make sure that our priorities are in line with the goals we're going to. So if a student resolutely wants to go to a certain program, certain school, they got to change their priorities. So that student must choose to, to put the priority of studying over maybe going away with their friends on spring break. A couple needs to put the priority of the other ahead of the priority of the self. The family that wants to get a debt needs to put the priority on saving over the priority of spending. 
And that can be what contributes to the change in a person being able to achieve the goal. So Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, or more accurately, actually, his goal was heaven via Jerusalem. And because at Easter, we know what we celebrate, we have confidence that he had determination, he had the priorities, and he had the goals all aligned. Because when he arrived there, he purchased our victory. And as Jesus was on his way to become the way and would then show us the way, others desired to follow him too. But he had to first challenge their priorities. He had to first challenge their priorities to make sure that these guys that came along and said, hey, I'll follow you. He said, are you sure you know what that means? Are you sure the priorities are in line? so that you won't just drop out partway through the race? Are you sure you know what it is so that when it gets hard, when it gets challenging, when it's not all that you thought it would live up to be, are you sure you know what that means to follow me? Are you resolute in your belief, or have you gone to the point of aligning your priorities with it as well? And we're looking at some examples today in this passage where guys wanted to follow Jesus, but he first challenged their priorities. Now, when Jesus' response to these guys, you're going to see, it seems like he's being harsh, like sometimes overly harsh. But it's just that degree of reality. Jesus just knows what it means to follow him. And so he's saying some hard things to these guys. He's saying, are you really sure you know what you're signing up for? And there's a tough lesson that's in this passage for us today as well about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Because it's not just about adding some beliefs to your existing life. It's not about just adding on some different commitments and ideals. You can't just go to the list of do's and don'ts and sort of a la carte pick the ones you like and that fits your current situation. You see, the call to follow Jesus Christ is not about a part-time commitment. It's not something that is for the hobbyist. It's not a weekend warrior type of event. It requires a resolute decision that leads to the evaluation of priorities in light of the significance of who he is and the urgency of the message that he gives us. So let's look at some examples of this, what this looks like in the Gospel of Luke. Is if we look to the very next verse, in verse 52 and 53, we see that if Jesus is resolutely heading out to Jerusalem, he's up in the northern kingdom of Israel right now, and so he needs to head south through Samaria to get down to where Jerusalem is. So, making that resolute turn towards Jerusalem, Jesus, as it says in verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went into Samarian village to get things ready. But when people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. See, wherever Jesus went, wherever he went, crowds followed. And we're not just talking a few friends, and not even just the 12 disciples. There was like an entourage of people who would follow him as he entered a town. So it was common practice to send a messenger ahead of him to let the town know, hey, there's a a crowd coming. This is great for commerce. This will be great for your your people and their markets, but it's going to put a burden on the city. So we need you to start getting ready. And also, he needed to go and secure a place for Jesus and his disciples to have a bed to sleep in for the night and hopefully some hospitality so they could have some food when they arrived there. But the Samaritans want nothing to do with Jesus and his crew. And the reason is, the reason we're told very clearly here by Luke is because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now the Samaritans that we talked about a few weeks back, if you recall, have a common ancestry with the Jewish people. 
but back in the time of the exile, the, some Samaritans, people who lived in this area of Samaria, had intermarried with other pagan nations, and that led to a rift between them and the Jews who hadn't, who hadn't uh, intermarried with these other nations. And this led to, because they had different cultures coming together now, it led to different beliefs and different worship practices, and the end result was this fierce rivalry that existed between Jews and Samaritans. And so the people in Samaria are not about to let a Jewish rabbi on his way to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival stay in their town. It's not going to happen as far as they're concerned. Now, if we keep reading beyond that, verse 54, we see that brothers James and John hear about this rejection of Jesus Christ, and they think this is the day of reckoning for this town. And so they say to them, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire? Like we are going to rain down fire on this town because we're going to just, we're just going to wipe these guys out for rejecting you. Now, I admire their bold faith. Because when you read that, you know these guys actually believe that they could do this, that they would just rain down fire on this town from heaven as judgment. And so you can appreciate their bold faith because they believe they could actually do it. But here's the question. What was their priority? What was the motivation behind that response? And maybe you can relate to this. Because when, when you feel a sense of rejection from somebody in the world, sometimes it leads us to a point of, of feeling like we've lost some dignity. When we get rejected, there's this injustice and this anger that kind of wells up inside of us that, that leads us to sometimes recoil, sometimes go, well, I'm just going to hide. I don't want to let them know any more about myself, so I have to endure further rejection. Other times we go the other direction, and we want to lash out and say, well, you rejected me, well, you're going to get yours now. And so the motivation behind this is vindication, is justice. This town just rejected them and the Lord that they love, and so today is the day. Today they're going to rain down judgment on this town. What was Jesus' priority? Jesus has a different response. You see, rather than vindication and justice, he prioritizes, he values love and patience. Because we're told that Jesus turned to these brothers and he rebuked them for that suggestion. And then he and the disciples went on their way to a different village. They just peacefully left. You see, the day will come when all people will be judged. But that day is not today. And that is not by our hand or by our will. You see, until that day, until the day when God judges all people, we are in this era as a church of love, of patience, and invitation. Now, that's not very satisfying. When you've just been rejected, when you feel that pain and the ache inside because somebody else just treated you poorly, you have this loss of dignity, you've just been rejected, to, to say that, well, love and patience and invitation is a tyrant, it is not satisfying at all. Because we want to see justice. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Because if we fast forward the story actually to, to Acts chapter 8, so we fast forward quite a ways to a few weeks past Easter, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 8, we learn that the Samaritans hear what happened when Jesus got to Jerusalem. They learn that he was rejected by these Jewish people. They learn that Jesus died for them and for their sins. And the gospel comes to this region in Samaria. And many people in Samaria, possibly even these villagers, accepted Jesus Christ and made him their Lord and Savior. So it seems like Jesus knew what he was doing as opposed to the brothers. So 
They continue down the road. And the disciples come across some other people in Samaria who are not necessarily as opposed to Jesus and his ministry as this one village was. And as they walk further down the road, they encounter three would-be Samaritan disciples who are actually invited and offer themselves to become followers. But Jesus wants them to do something before they accept. He wants them to count the cost. He wants them to understand, are you really prepared to follow me to the end? So what do these three guys look like? Well, this first man walks up to him. First, first man walks up and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. A confident statement, a short, concise, confident statement. But one that requires reflection. So Jesus warns him of what that will require. Here's what that would look like if you mean you truly want to follow me wherever I go. And he responds kind of cryptically by saying, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You see, this man probably had the idea that he was going to follow this typical Jewish rabbi, which literally meant following behind your typical Jewish rabbi and learning as he talked and as he spoke and had encounters with people. These rabbis were respected members of the community. They had homes that they would go to at night. They had incomes that they could rely upon. They, they had families. They could set their own schedules. Some maybe even except for Friday had weekends off. But Jesus says to them, he says, I have no place to lay my head. I have no place to retreat to. I have no home base I can go back to time and time again. I have no sanctuary that I can escape the pressures of these crowds that keep coming around. Instead, day after day, I am always on the move. I am sleeping under somebody else's roof. Sometimes I got to stay in a hotel. And as far as food goes, I'm at the mercy of the hospitality of those people who welcome us or like the town of Samaria, don't welcome us into their place. See, this man who comes up and offers to follow Jesus may have genuinely been willing to follow him to Jerusalem. He may have been willing to accept a period of homelessness. But there's a deeper question that Jesus drills down below that type of commitment. And what he kind of says to this man, he, he's saying, are you prepared to give up the idea that this world is your home? Are you willing to go where you are called? You don't know where I'm going necessarily. You don't know what the road ahead looks like. But you say you're willing to follow me anywhere. Are you willing to follow me anywhere? Even if it means you have to give up the comforts of this world that you so enjoy in the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God. Are you willing to live that principle that Jesus had taught? The principle that says seek first the kingdom of God. That's the priority. And then all these other things, some of those are going to be added on top. But are you willing to seek the kingdom first and give up all other if the call requires it. Now most of us will not be asked to sacrifice a whole lot for following Jesus Christ, if we're honest. We're not going to be asked to sell our homes and our cars, to, to give up our iPhones and our freedom. We're not going to be asked to, to leave our families forever and, and give up all of our weekends unless you're a pastor and then you just can't have a weekend off. But that goes with the territory. However, some people are. Think of our missionaries who, who go around the world, who have left all that is familiar to them. They leave their friends, they leave their families for the sake of the gospel. They go to regions where it is dangerous for them to be known as followers of Christ for the sake of the call that is placed upon them. Some people are called to that level of commitment. Most of us won't be. But even if you're not in that category, all of us are called out of our comfort zones. When we choose to follow Jesus, we need to get out of the comfort zones we find ourselves in. 
we need to go to the office, go to the school, go to the party, go to the neighbor as a follower of Jesus Christ, wearing that banner and that awareness to show the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. And how when he comes into another person's life, he brings new life into them. And that costs us. It may not cost us the tangible things like homes and, and, and phones and cars and, and traveling to other sides of the country, but it costs us a change in priorities. It requires us to view our time differently. How am I going to spend my time? Will I dedicate it to those purposes or those causes or will I dedicate it to binge watching Netflix? It changes the way we view our status. Will I do what I need to do to hide what I need to hide to maintain my status? Or will I step forth and say, I am a child of God. That is my status. And receive whatever repercussions, positive or negative, come from that. It causes us to reevaluate our priorities and how we view other people. Do we see God's love and grace for all people and enter into their lives in love and grace for the opportunity to share the truth of who he is and his plan for their life? It costs us willing to step forth and allow our true, authentic selves to exist in the world so that when we have a bad day, we say we had a bad day and allow others to come in and minister to us. See, it does cost us something. To follow Jesus anywhere means to put the priority of the kingdom of God first rather than our own lives, rather than the priority of our own kingdoms coming first. And that's not easy. That'll look different in each person's life. But that is a cost that is hard to pay. Well, as they continue down the road, there's even more to pile on top of that. As they walk down the road even further, Jesus is approached this time by a man who comes to him, or sorry, Jesus approaches a man this time, walks up to him with this classic phrase that he used on so many of the followers that are currently with him, and he says to him, follow me. Now, historically, people have responded yes, and we read in the Gospels, they immediately left everything and they followed him, but, but not this time. This time the man says, I'm intrigued by the invitation. But, but first, first let me go home and bury my father. Which seems like a reasonable request. That shouldn't take too long. If your father's already passed, then a funeral will take a few hours and the burial. And then, yeah, you can come with us. We'll help you grieve. It'll be good for you. You can come with us. We'll help you grieve as we go. But that's not what's actually happening here. Here's the problem. The problem is that this man's father hasn't died yet. This man, he wants to bury his father, but his father hasn't died yet. He's an elderly fellow, most likely. And what this man is actually saying is, is, you know, I've got an elderly father at home, and and I want to spend time with them. And that's kind of my primary duty and responsibility right now. And so once I've fulfilled that role, you know, then, then I'll, I'll come and start following you, Jesus. Now, on one hand, it's a reasonable priority to want to care for the family. But the problem is that this could take years. It could take years for his father to pass. And while that's not a bad thing to want to be with an elderly father as he's about to pass, it shows that in this man he has no concept of the urgency and the importance of the call that Jesus has just extended to him. Jesus Christ just walked up to him, tapped him on the shoulder and said, you, come with me. And he's like, well... I bury my father first. He didn't understand who it was that was calling him and the significance that's behind that. So Jesus responds to him, and he says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Or more literally to understand this verse, he says, let the spiritually dead 
bury the physical dead. But those who are spiritually alive, those who know Jesus, those who have encountered him and been transformed by him, you have another calling now because of the presence of Jesus in your life. You know, I talk to people on a regular basis and I hear variations of this exact challenge. People who have heard the good news, people who have accepted Jesus into their lives. And they, and they do have a bit of an understanding of how incredible that is and, and the transformation that's happened. But, but like this guy, before they fully commit, before they even consider fully commit, they say, I, I got some stuff to do first. I talk to people who are going through their youth years who say, you know, I, I just got so much to figure out right now. I can't add Jesus on top of figuring out everything else. So once I figure this out, then I'll figure that out. Run into young adults who are saying, man, this is the time of life to explore. This is when I go experience what the life has to offer and all the options and opportunities. And, you know, and if, if, if Jesus came along for the ride, that uh, might kind of cramp my style a little bit. Talk to people in business who say, you know, I, I'm kind of trying to build something here, trying to get something going. And, and, you know, I'm committed to that. That's where all my focus is at right now. And quite honestly, I don't really want Jesus to know some of the maneuvering that I'm doing in there. Once I get that established, then. And I've even talked to people who have said, you know what, I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do, go where I want to go, live how I want to live. And they've actually said to me, on my deathbed, then I'll make that choice. That's their plan. That's the plan. That's not that different from what this guy is saying. Later. Later I can commit to that. But see, the priority that Jesus is calling this man to is to see the importance of not just what's happened in his life, but the urgency and the significance of having Jesus in his life. And once a person, I, I honestly believe, once a person experiences the transformational nature of Jesus coming into their life, it, it, it's, it's actually a battle for understanding which priorities are going to rule. Because if we fully embrace the importance of who Jesus is and the urgency of his message to go forward, that is a priority higher than anything else, no matter how noble, no matter how important, no matter how responsible we are to attend to other things, that the message in the presence of Jesus becomes the number one thing. That was the priority lesson for this guy. But then finally, there's a third one. As Jesus continues down the road again, another man comes up to him. And offers to follow him again, a third invitation, a third opportunity. He says, but Jesus, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. Like a soldier who is being called overseas. He's willing to go serve and he will pour himself fully into serving. But first he wants to say goodbye to his wife and kids. Now at the risk of Jesus appearing anti-family, which might be starting to develop here a little bit, this request wasn't acceptable to Jesus either. And he proverbially replied to him by saying, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, you might be curious what the problem with this request is. A goodbye shouldn't take very long. That should be quick. Say goodbye to my wife. Say goodbye to my kids. I got a calling. I got a mission. I'm going with Jesus. And away we go. You see, there's a cultural aspect that's missing from understanding this problem. When a family member was ready to leave, the family would all come together and it was customary to start these day after day after day drawn out dinner parties that would take place. 
We see an example of this in Judges chapter 19 where a, a man has a wife who goes to visit her family up in, in Bethlehem. And four months pass. And so he figures, well, I, I need to go get my wife and bring her back home. So he plans this kind of quick up there and then turn around and back down trip, you know, up on a Saturday, back home on a Sunday kind of thing. So he heads up to Bethlehem. He arrives to pick up his wife. His father-in-law greets him and welcomes him into the house. Says, come on, come stay for a day. So he agrees. And then three days pass. And for three days, they're eating and drinking and sleeping and repeating and sleeping and repeating. Three days pass. He goes, okay, enough is enough. And he gets up ready to go leave. And the father-in-law says, no, 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 come on. You got to have something to eat before you go. No, get cleaned up so you can travel comfortably. And so they do. And then the father-in-law looks at his watch and goes, look at the time. You know, tomorrow's, tomorrow will be a good option. And so they spend the night. And then that process happens again and again and again. And suddenly, as we read in this story, a, a, a quick overnighter there and back trip turns into a, lo- a week-long time of festivities. Now, this is similar to the delay, but there's a different principle at work here. You see, they did this because it was this customary tradition to not want to let go of the past, to not allow the transition to take place. It's this looking back and not wanting to look forward. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. It's not a point about abandoning family. The point he's trying to make is that if we are hanging on to the past, if we are not willing to let go of what is behind, we will never be able to endure the rigors of discipleship that are ahead. And when a person becomes a true disciple of Jesus Christ, they are to fix their eyes on what is ahead, not on what is behind. As Jesus says, the number one rule of plowing if you're going to plow and drive those oxen, you've got to keep that line straight. If you want to keep that line straight, your eyes are riveted on the end of the field that you're moving towards. If you look to the side, if you look behind, that plow will wander all over the place. We see this principle. We don't plow a lot of fields nowadays. Some of us, maybe we do, but not very many of us go plow fields very often. But all of us have learned to drive. Right now, Joshua is getting his license, and I take him out driving on occasion. And you know that when you shoulder check, when you want to change lanes, you need to keep your body focused straight ahead. Because what's the most common tendency? To turn your whole body. And then you turn the wheel and you swerve into a bus, right? So you've got to keep your eyes fixed ahead. You've got to keep your body pointed forward. Otherwise, the whole wheel turns and you start swerving all over the place. That's the principle he's talking about here. And this is a very real tendency that exists in the lives of followers of Jesus Christ. Even those who have been following him for a long time, this is a common tendency. Maybe even more so for those who have been following him for a long time. Because when we start to walk that path, when we start to walk in the way of Jesus Christ, it gets hard. We start to endure rejection. You do it for a while and you get tired. It gets frustrating. You start to give up comforts that you'd rather not give up. It gets tough. And what do we have a tendency to do? To look back. To long for the old life. To have that rosy retrospection of remembering the past all too fondly. Remember Israelites walking through the desert. Longing to return to Egypt. Why? Because we had it so good back in Egypt. Remember Lot's wife looking back for preference for Sodom. It's 
See, looking back or clinging to the past is the very thing that stops a lot of people from starting the journey or is the very thing that gets people off course from the journey that they have started. So the priority for a follower of Christ is what lies ahead. What lies ahead with him as opposed to what lies in the past. Now all these three examples, these four examples we've looked at so far today are are all kind of couched in cultural norms. And they exist in situations that are different from what we have today. The demands of following Jesus are the exact same for us today. And it's hard. This, there's aspects of this that are, this is a hard teaching. Because so often in our Western world, in our, in our Western church in particular, we come to church and we sing our songs and we hear these sermons about follow Jesus and, and, and there's some challenges along the way, but it's about comforts and it's about blessings and, and it's all going to be good. We can clap our hands the whole way along. And while I believe that, I, I believe that life is better with Jesus, I believe that unwavering, life is better with Jesus than any other option. It's better than life without him. It's better than any other philosophy. It's better than any other religious system that you might look into. I honestly believe that life is better with Jesus. If we have this sober-minded reading of Scripture, we see all over the New Testament that there is a cost to being a follower. It costs us something because it is hard, because there will be rejection, because it will require sacrifice. That's why Jesus cautioned us to count the cost before we start following him, before we make that decision. If we look back to the Gospel of Luke, in, in Luke chapter 14, he says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay that foundation, if you start to build it, you get your foundation done, and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. They'll say this person began something they were not prepared to finish. See, Jesus isn't asking for a part-time commitment. He's not asking for a hobbyist level of commitment. It's, It's not about weekend warrior stuff here. The level of commitment Jesus is looking for is beyond that. And if that's all that a person invests in their relationship, their commitment to him, they are going to miss the power of having Christ in their lives. And if we miss the power, we miss the ability to share with passion the difference Jesus makes in our lives. And so it affects our witness. But at the same time, when it gets hard, it gets easy to fall away. It gets easy to walk away. There's a well-known little children's hymn. You're probably all familiar with it. That, remember that hymn, that little children's song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? You familiar with that one? You know, you might know the story behind it. See, it's based upon a man and his family who lived in India in the mid-19th century. And through the efforts of an American Baptist missionary, they all as a family decided to follow Jesus. Now, quite often when we hear these stories, that we, the next part of the story is, and, and it was a little rough for a while, people were new to this idea, but one by one, the whole village became converted. That's not this story. That's not this story. See, after they made this commitment, the village chief came to the man, and he said, you have to renounce your faith. His response to the chief was, I have decided to follow Jesus. The village chief said, you renounce your faith or I will kill your kids. The man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And they killed his kids. They said, 
renounce your faith or we will kill your wife. And in response to that, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. They asked him one more time. And he said, though none will join me, still I will follow. And they killed his wife. And then as they took him himself to be executed for the faith in Jesus Christ, his parting words were, the world behind me, the cross before me. And he lost his life. Now, following his death, the chief and the village came to faith. And that spread out through the region of India. Isn't it amazing how our children's songs have dark backgrounds to them? That's the background. Those are the words of that song, where the words that this man spoke as he set his eyes and fixed his eyes on that total, resolute commitment that he had made. And he had changed his priorities, as we could see, to say, I will follow Jesus. Now that is a path tougher than any of us, I think, will ever be asked to walk. But the path that we are asked to walk is anything but easy. It is anything but comfortable. It is anything but convenient. I know in my own life, when I come to these crossroads of temptation and, and the lures of the world, these things that I know I need to resist, I pause at that fork in the road and I'm like, oh, it's going to be hard to say no to that. But then there's this voice in my head that goes, it's supposed to be hard. Jesus promised it would be hard. So don't be surprised when it's hard. That is the promise. And when we feel that pressure within us to do or to not to, to, to withhold or to serve, to push into that. Because if we want to grow on our faith, we only grow when we're put under pressure and know that we need to trust beyond ourselves. We want to become genuine followers. We only become genuine by passing through the flames, by going through the fire lane, all the impurities burn off so that just the pure, clean, true remains. Only with heat and only with pressure can you make diamonds. And that's what's being shaped in us as we walk this path with Christ. The cost is high. But there's also this promise that we are not abandoned in this walk that we have alone. We're given other sojourners to come with us in, in the body of Christ, in the church, who walk this path with us. And that is a comfort. And that is a reassurance that we have. But that is not all. We are also told that we walk with God because we are following Jesus Christ. We are walking with Jesus Christ. And while hardship is common throughout the Bible, stories of people being persecuted and giving up, sacrificing things, while that is common throughout the Bible, even more common is the presence of Jesus Christ, is the presence of God with his people as he strengthens them, as he empowers them, as he encourages them, as in the middle of those challenges there is this peace that comes upon them and they endure it with a sense of joy, that is even more common than the promise for hardship. And that is what we can trust in as we accept the challenge. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said, even though we are hard-pressed on every side, we are not crushed. Even though we are perplexed, we are not in despair. Even though we are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. These are some of the blessings that come from a life that is fully sold out and committed to Jesus Christ. But as wonderful as those things are to help us walk and to endure this challenge that is ahead of us, they actually pale in comparison to the glorious riches that await us in heaven. 
Because Jesus said in Luke 14, 14, that you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That means that there is no cost you will pay in this life that will not be made up 1,000-fold at the resurrection. So we are to count the cost. And the cost is total in principle. Maybe even to some degree in experience. But in the end, having known Jesus Christ now and forevermore is our gain. And we can say the words as Paul did in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, but whatever the gains I have, I now consider as lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That's a hard teaching. I know it is. I know it's difficult for us. But it's the call that comes out to each person even still today. And it's not just the words that Jesus taught. It's not just the commitment that he required. It's actually what he modeled for us as well. And that's when we come to this communion table. We see that he arrived in Jerusalem and continued to model this for us. You see, only days after, only days after he arrived, and the events that we'll remember in the next few weeks, Remember that he walked into Jerusalem with the excitement of the crowds, but the excitement of the crowds was soon replaced. It was replaced with rejection as the crowds and his closest friends just fled and abandoned him. It was replaced with persecution. We're at the hands of Roman centurions. They, they flogged him and nailed him to a cross. The excitement of his arrival was replaced as he endured abandonment when the sin of humanity was placed upon him and for the first time, he became conscious to the Lord's, to God's removal from him. And for the first time, he lacked that presence as the sin of humanity descended upon him. But with eyes set towards heaven and the salvation that it would provide, there was no turning back. And he fulfilled the Father's will, revealed God's love to all of us through his sacrifice and made a way for us to come into relationship with the Father forever. And on this table are the elements that we come to once a month to remember the total commitment, the sacrifice, the cost of our salvation. And all are invited to come forward or to participate in receiving these elements who have taken that step of commitment towards him. So there's no question of the commitment he had towards us. It was total. The fact that we have the bread on the table, symbolic of his body, which he, which he gave. The cup, symbolic of his blood, which was shed to, to cover up a multitude of sins, which he gave. So that he gave his life in exchange for ours. But then he calls us to give our lives in exchange for his. And that total commitment. He's the one who calls us to walk that path but it's nothing that he hasn't already walked himself. And so he knows what he calls us to. He knows the level of commitment he calls us to. And he promises to walk with us, to empower us, to give us the ability to do so. And so as we come to this time of distributing and then receiving and taking these together, I just want to give us all a moment of reflection. Just to, just to consider, not only to say thank you to Jesus for the sacrifice, 
and the salvation that we have and the reality of his presence in our lives. But also to, to look at those areas of our lives where perhaps, you know, there's some parts where we're all in, but there's other aspects of our lives that we're, we're kind of just dipping our toe in the water. But we know that the call we receive is to jump into the deep end, even in those areas of our lives with Christ, to fully commit to him as he fully committed to us. So I'll give you the opportunity to reflect upon that. And at the same time, if you have not personally made this commitment in your own life yet, the call goes out to you too. There's no question it's a hard call. I'm pretty clear about that today. But I can tell you it's worth it. Because life is better with Jesus than any other option that you'll ever experience. And this is the means by which we come to have life with Jesus Christ. And all it remains for us to do in that first commitment is to say thank you, Jesus. And say thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for stepping into that gap to pay the price for those sins that I couldn't pay for myself. For giving your life. Because you gave your life, I now give you mine. If you pray that prayer in your heart, then, then you're welcome to come participate in this as well. But I also want to welcome you to come speak with me afterwards as well so we can talk more about that as well. Let's take a moment now of reflection, and then I'll ask Bevan if you have prayed for the